Lord God, I just pray you bless Hattie this morning and the words that you uh, are going to speak to her. I know, you know the work that Hattie's been putting in this week, and I just pray, even now, would you just bless Hattie's mind to help her to remember all of the things that she's she's written in her notes. I pray that everything that is of you in this sermon would really stick to us, um, and that we would be able to focus on what it is you're doing with us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Good morning. I apologise for my noisy children. Ooh, that's exciting. Right, so today I want to start right at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. I know that I'm meant to be speaking to you from Ephesians and that seems a long way away from the very first page of the Bible this morning. In fact, in my Bible, it's a whole 1,175 pages away from the passage that we're going to work from, which means that if we carry on at this rate, we may be here some time. But we're going to talk about spirit-filled worship this morning, and I think in order to really do that justice, I need to put it in a perspective of the whole Bible. There's a really, really fantastic Bible project video on this. I cannot recommend it enough. It's about five minutes long, and they explain aspects of this much, much better than I will. But the reason I'm not just going to show you a video this morning is because it's also quite quick. And I felt like I needed to pause it about 10 times in order to take in all of the richness. So I can strongly recommend that you go away and you look that up on YouTube when you have a minute. No. (laughs) Don't worry, Dave, I would have warned you. Um, But I strongly recommend that you go away and watch it. But In the meantime, I'm going to do you my best version of that that I can do slightly slower and in a slightly more understandable way. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So on this very first page of the Bible, we are introduced to this amazing, incredible creator This amazing creative mind. Someone who has the power to create something from nothing. Heaven and earth and whose spirit is hovering over the waters. It's quite an image. And so as we continue through the first few pages, we see that God is able to bring order and beauty from chaos. He's able to build a beautiful garden of life. And his crowning accomplishment in the garden, God creates these Weird things called humans in his own image, which means that they are made to rule over this creation in God's behalf. In Genesis 1.28, we see that God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God is commissioning human beings to rule over this beautiful creation on his behalf. 
They're called to use the power that they've been given to do really good, life-giving, meaningful work with him. And they're given a choice as to how they do that. They have a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. They have the option to partner with God and they can find freedom by relying and trusting on him and trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they can seize power themselves and define good and evil on their own. And God gives them fair warning that that will kill them. And they hear a voice of a dark and mysterious creature which tells them that the choice is simple. That they should just take the fruit. It will give them the power and the freedom that they want to rule the world on their own terms. And they do it. They seize the knowledge. And as a result, they become suspicious. They become self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent paragraphs, and eventually a whole civilization called Babylon, which has redefined evil as good. And as they were warned, they should therefore receive death. They deserve to be completely wiped out, and yet God instead chooses to scatter the people to the ends of the earth. And here in the Bible story, we focus in on just one man and one woman. Does anyone want to guess who I'm talking about? Oh, not Adam and Eve, we're past Adam and Eve. Someone a little bit later. Hmm? Oh, no, we're not quite a lot. Abraham, good job, Julie. Yeah, I'm talking about Abraham and Sarah. He looked exactly like this. Uh, it's a photograph, absolutely. Um, and God promises that from these guys will come a whole new people, a new nation who have a second chance at a new way forward for humanity. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is about the family of these guys. If they succeed, life is going to be great. And they don't. And that is cutting a very, very long story, very, very short, but they don't. Um, even when they have great people in charge of this big family called Israel, they have... They put people in charge like Moses and Saul and David who like know God's guidance and can hear his voice and are super wise. And um, even they give up. They give up, they give in, and they mess up. They give in to temptation to do stuff in their own way, in their own power, not relying and following God. Israel was warned by the prophets that God had sent them uh, that these choices are going to lead them back to Babylon, but this time as conquered captives in exile. And unsurprisingly, they didn't change, and that's exactly where they ended up. But if Israel can fail with even God's personal presence, if Israel can fall down with God being like, I'm here, do this, what hope is there for us? What hope is there that we won't mess up? Well, the prophets said not just that you're being terrible, you're going to end up back in exile. They also said that there was a new hope coming. The story was not over. They said that God would send a new leader to Israel. He would cover for their failures. He'd cover for their sin, those times where they've not followed God. And they would, that leader was also going to transform hearts and minds so that they could make the right choices. 
It would be a leader who'd be born of a virgin, behave like a servant, be betrayed, suffer, die, be resurrected, and in doing so, would bear the consequences for our sin and suffer in our place. So very specific, if somewhat unusual, sounding saviour. But that's where we are when we reach the end of the Old Testament, left with the promise of someone greater to come, someone who's going to atone, who's going to pay for the sins of humanity and lead people into the right choices for the future. So we come to the last 300 pages of my Bible, something like the last quarter, in which we finally get to meet this dude. We are getting closer to Ephesians, I promise. We're getting there. So we start in the New Testament and we get introduced to this man who comes from the line of Israel's kings. He's called Jesus of Nazareth, helpfully, again, looks exactly like that. Um, Again, born of a virgin called Mary, and he said that he was bringing all of these promises to completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all of humanity had given into in the past, and he resisted it. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that the real power was in serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor, the destitute, the unloved, the rejected, the forgotten, and even their enemies who actually will. And the Bible goes on to claim that Jesus is more than just a man who can resist temptation, that he is God himself become human to be for Israel and all of humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself. Dying, having lived a life without sin, he took punishment and death that rightly should have been ours. His sacrificial love proved to be more powerful than even death itself. So, as the Old Testament prophets had predicted, he was raised again from the dead, went up into heaven, and now, having washed us clean from our sin, He gives us the opportunity to have eternal life with him. But to do so, we have to make the right choice. And it's a new choice, represented by a new tree in the cross. We can stick with the old way of being human, where we define for ourselves good and evil, and apart from God. Or we can venture into the new way of Jesus, by confessing our sins and putting our faith in him as our saviour. And the Bible goes on to tell us that those who choose to follow Jesus, to follow this new Jesus way, are themselves energised with God's own power, God's personal presence on this earth, the Holy Spirit. And that means that people who know that, and that they are loved and forgiven by God, become people who can love and forgive others in return. So that's where we are when we end up in Ephesians. That's where we are when we end up in that teaching series that we've got to this far. Jesus has come, he's taught, he's died, he's been resurrected. And the house churches in Ephesus, who this letter was written to, were founded on the understanding and knowledge that Jesus is Christ, the promised king talked about in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And Paul writes this letter to encourage the believers not just to know the truth with their heads, but to believe it in their hearts and to change their life based on it. Over the last few weeks, we've had Paul calling us to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received as followers of Jesus. And we're going to continue that a little bit today. But today we're going to talk about how do you do it as well. Not just what do you do, but how do you do it. Let me read you the passage I'm going to speak from. I'm reading from the NIV. 
If you have a Bible and want to follow along, I'm reading from Ephesians 5.17. Uh, if you don't have one with you, that's absolutely fine. You can either grab one from the back or just follow along on the screen. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I found preparing this preach really quite hard this week. And the reason I found it difficult is not because this passage is not great or not exciting. It's because this passage has about 10 preachers in it. I just spent hours of debating whether I should just, we should just seek the Lord's will together. What, it, what does it mean to seek the Lord's will for our lives? What does it mean to not get drunk on wine? Does it literally mean don't get hammered down the pub? Um, my short answer is no, no, it doesn't. Um, but what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to speak over one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit? What does any of that mean? There's so much I could have spoken about this morning. But there are three main questions that I want to answer with you. Who do we worship? Why do we worship? And how do we worship? So who do we worship? Who? It's God. Who do we worship on a Sunday morning? Pardon? Our Father. Fantastic. Tell me a little bit more. He's good. There's no, there's, I'm not looking for like a right answer here. I'm not looking for like a hundred right answers. Our Creator, absolutely. He's our Father. He's our Creator. What else does God do? Who else is God? He's our provider, absolutely, like Julie was talking about. He provides, he creates, he looks after us as our father. He's our redeemer, absolutely. He's our saviour. He's our comforter, fantastic. He's all in all and in all things. He's the Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace, Light of the World, Jesus Christ. And we heard in that first overview of the Bible who God is to us. God is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love for his creation. That's you. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. He loves you so much that he sent his one and only son into the world to die on your behalf. That's who we're worshipping. We're worshipping this amazing God. This God who created the heavens and the earth. That God who created the heavens and the earth but still cares when your dog is ill. How cool is that? We worship a God who's mightier even than death himself and yet wants us to call him Abba. He wants us to call him Father. He wants a personal relationship. We worship a God who is just insanely powerful. 
but wants to connect with you and cares when you're struggling. He cares when you're struggling with low mood. He cares when you're struggling in your relationships. He cares when you're anxious. He cares when you don't have money. He cares when you're just struggling in your relationship with him. He cares about that. That is who we're talking about worshipping. So that's the who. And honestly, I could have stayed here all day. Just sitting in our Father's presence, learning about him. But there's some really cool stuff still to come. So let's consider why we worship this awesome God. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from Spirit. Sing and make music from your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I apologise. I'm going to read this scripture. I sort of apologise. I don't really. I'm going to read the scripture to you a lot this morning. Um, I'm a teacher of the chemistry kind rather than of the Bible kind. Um, and if, if nothing else, one thing I've learned from my uh, GCSE students, if, if you say it enough, they might take some of it home. So hopefully if I just read this passage enough to you, some of it might go in. Um, but, and there's just so much depth in here that I love it. But we're going to focus on that bit in bold for this section here. Why do we worship? So do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the spirit. That spirit is the personal presence of God. When you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, God sends the spirit to guide you, to empower you, and support you to live in the way that Jesus taught us. Shortly after Jesus was resurrected from the dead and went up to heaven, his disciples were all gathered together, and something pretty amazing happened. They got filled with this Holy Spirit for the first time. Um, That's what Paul's talking about here. It's an event we now call Pentecost, and it's found in the book of the Bible called Acts. It's one of my favourite passages, so so I'm going to ask you to indulge me for a minute, because I've got the microphone, and let me read it to you. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every uh, nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of them can hears us hears them in our own uh, native language parthians uh, medes and elamites residents of mesopotamia judea cappadocia pontus and asia phrygia and pamphylia egypt and the parts of libya near cyrene visitors from rome both jews and converts to judaism uh, cretans and arabs we hear them declaring the words wonders of god in our own tongues amazed and perplexed they asked one another what does this mean some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. I love this bit. And I love it just because, like, how bananas is that? Right? You've never been filled with the Holy Spirit before. You've read a bit about the Holy Spirit, but probably not doing much like this stuff in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit does some really, really cool stuff in the Old Testament, but it's certainly not happening to, like, you and your mates. Um, how cool is this? <coughs> If you're a disciple, 
Are you aware that you're speaking in weird languages? Are you aware that you're speaking and declaring the gospel of Jesus uh, in like Arabic? How cool is that to just suddenly find yourself able to spread the gospel in Arabic? I would love that. I need that in my world. But also, I love that they, they weren't quiet about it. They weren't like praying in these different languages under their breath going, well, this is kind of cool. I could, I could get on board with this. This is kind of awesome. They are praying so loudly that a crowd gathers, right? That the crowd starts gathering all in this, in the house where they're sitting and around the house where they're sitting. And that crowd, I mean, imagine being in that crowd. Imagine being just visiting Jerusalem. This is something you do three or four times a year. You come, you celebrate the festivals with your family. Um, it's all very lovely. You spent a long time doing ceremonial washing, eating lots of food, that kind of thing. It's a little bit like Christmas, but four times a year. Um, and suddenly, these random dudes, who you sort of have heard about because they've been kicking up a bit of a storm, but who are fishermen, tax collectors, you know, no one very special, and certainly nobody who has any right to speak Arabic at you or to speak in your language from all these parts of the world, they start talking about this amazing risen Christ, this amazing gospel and the wonders of God in your language. There is no way that these fishermen from Galilee could have kind of learned it on the sly, really. They're not going to have picked up those languages for their own strength. They don't have Duolingo. Right? They are sat... This is a God thing. So I can imagine being pretty amazed and perplexed. But I can also imagine being that last bit. Who are these dudes? Why are they so drunk? At the time that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, other pagan religions around at that point are going to be using wine and more entertaining substances um, to get intoxicated, to generate a sense of euphoria, to generate kind of fake spirituality, to make them feel like something cool is happening. So when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he's referring back to Pentecost and reminding them that they don't have to be drunk on wine. They don't have to be intoxicated with whatever else is around because they can be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. They don't have to fake euphoria. They don't have to fake spirituality. They don't have to fill that hole and that need for something extra with intoxicating substances. They get to fill it with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does a whole bunch of stuff in our day-to-day lives. Often as charismatics, as a charismatic movement, we talk a lot about Pentecostal kind of experiences, right? Which are amazing. We talk about speaking in tongues. We talk about prophecy. We talk about the gift of the Spirit. But the Spirit does more work than that in us. And I think sometimes we can ignore it. The Spirit empowers our day-to-day discipleship. It empowers us to walk wisely, as Paul says in verse 15, by correcting, guiding, and changing our hearts. The Holy Spirit can and does do that big stuff, but he also does the little gradual things too. And we're called to partner with him in the transformation of our minds. 
we're called to have soft hearts that are willing to be transformed to be more like Jesus. Just like drinking too much wine that can lead to debauched behavior, Paul is saying that letting the Holy Spirit direct us, letting us, letting yourself be intoxicated by this Holy Spirit can direct us to a conduct that's more in line with God's definition of good and evil, that is more going down that path of Jesus that we talked about earlier. That's what we want, isn't it? To walk more steadily down that path of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is how we do that. The Bible scholar Gordon Fee describes Paul's command to be filled with the Spirit to be the ultimate command and the one that is key to every other command that is in Ephesians and it is in how to live a life worthy of the gospel. With the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we're guided, supported and helped along the path that we've chosen to walk with God. Without him, we're likely to flounder. Without the Holy Spirit working in our lives, walking in the light like Paul calls us to do, is impossible. It just seems like a long to-do list and do better list. And I think that's where people can sometimes go wrong when they're picking up the Bible for the first time. They're just seeing this stuff and being like, well, I'm never going to achieve that. Right? I'm never going to be I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be able to do all that stuff that Paul's asking you to do. And in your own strength, probably not. I mean, you can try pretty hard. But we're not called to do it in our own strength. We're called to do it partnering with the Spirit of God. And in that, all things become possible. So how do you get filled with this Holy Spirit? Every Christian, when they choose to follow Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, there are repeated occurrences that, uh, of people getting filled with the Holy Spirit on multiple occasions. Um, So according to the New Testament, we need to be repeatedly filled with the Holy Spirit for two reasons. We need to to be repeatedly filled to enable us to do empowered worship and in order for us to witness. And we get filled with the Holy Spirit through prayer. We can pray ourselves to be filled. And there's something really special um, about being people laying their hands on you, which just means that someone coming alongside you to pray and putting their hand on your shoulder or on your head. And that's all that is. There's someone coming to pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit and if you've never, you just don't feel like you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, we would love to pray for you this morning. And I'm going to invite you to come and pray with me or Dave Uh, or anyone who looks friendly uh, at the end of this talk. So we've established who we worship. We worship a creative, almighty, personal Father God who cleansed us from our sin and made it possible for us to enter into relationship with him. And we've established why we worship. We worship through the power of the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells in us when we've given our lives to follow Jesus. But what does that God-honouring, spirit-led worship look like? Let's look back at that text again. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That seems pretty easy. It looks like speaking to one another with psalms. Hymns and songs. It looks like... Always giving thanks. And it looks like submitting to one another. 
As a result of being filled with the Spirit, our behaviour will change to look like that. And the praise that we're talking about can take the form of musical worship like we've been doing this morning, like Anna led us so beautifully in this morning. We declare truth to each other in songs, truth about who God is, about how powerful he is, about how much he loves you. And we declare and praise God in heaven as well. And we do that with psalms. We've spoken some psalms this morning. We do that with songs and hymns that have already been written and thought about and pondered over. And we do that with songs that have been put in our hearts by the Spirit to sing. But crucially, in all of that, both your heart and your head have to be engaged. I have spent a long time. So I grew up in church. But if you hear me talk about my testimony, I will tell you that I became a Christian when I was 21. But I grew up in a church forever. I spent a long time doing four services a day, sat in the choir dutifully, singing psalms and chanting psalms from the Psalter, singing hymns from the hymn book, listening to the same preach four times a day. Um, And I didn't mean any of it. I didn't know what those words meant. I didn't care what they meant. They were pretty. I cared whether my harmony line sounded nice. I cared whether our choir sounded in tune. I cared whether the microphone was working for the preacher. I cared whether the congregation were joining in and I was leading effectively from the front. I cared how my choir robes looked. Usually about six inches too short, but apart from that. Um, I cared about all that stuff, but my head wasn't engaged. My heart wasn't engaged. My heart wasn't worshipping the Father God. There was no worship there. That wasn't spiritual worship. Spiritual worship requires engagement. It requires you to care. But that's different, as we've been hearing this morning, that's different to necessarily feeling the emotions that might go along with that. So you might expect, if you are worshipping Father God, that you would be happy all the time. And there are certainly Christians out there who seem to be very happy, shiny people. And those people are amazing. But you never know what's going on with them. Like, when I first got to church in Southampton, so this is when I first became a Christian, just after I'd been healed, uh, I first went along to church in Southampton, and I was met by these people who just seemed happier than anyone I'd ever met in my entire life. And these people were so happy, they were scary. I was like... What is going on with you lot? Uh, they greeted me. They gave me free hot chocolate. It was amazing. Uh, we met in the cinema. It was fantastic. The seats reclined. It was beautiful. It was very comfortable. But these people were so happy. And they were so happy all the time. And the first time I went, I was like, there was no way these people are real. I, I'm going to keep coming back here. And these people, I'm just going to get to see behind it. Right? And yet... These people, it turns out, they weren't happy all the time. They weren't. But what they were was real. They were overflowing with the joy of the Spirit, with the love of God. That's what I was feeling when I walked in there and I just had these happy, shiny people looking at me. 
being all that joyful and wanting to give me a hug. That's what I was experiencing, was the overflowing of God's love. Because these people were just filled with the Spirit. But they didn't always feel happy when they were worshipping. When they were worshipping Jesus, they felt all sorts of stuff. We all felt all sorts of stuff. It's about making sure that your head and heart are still focused on God. Some of the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning aren't written out of place of feeling happy. They're not written out of a place of feeling like the world is wonderful and all is going well. Dave spoke to us last week about blessed be your name. I've spoken to you before about it as well with, uh, well with my soul. Right, that amazing, amazing hymn that was written uh, by Horatio Spafford when he was on a boat. He was crossing the Atlantic Ocean to go and meet his wife. They'd just lost everything in the Great Chicago Fire. Cost all his money and his two-year-old, I think. And he was—he sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him um, to come over to Europe to try and start to rebuild a new life. And he'd gone over a couple of weeks before. Um, and whilst he was on the journey over, he received a telegram from his wife saying that the ship that his wife and his children were on had sunk and the only survivor was his wife. In the course of just a couple of years, he lost five children. In the course of two weeks, he lost four of his daughters. And he wrote this song on the journey over on that ship very close to the place where his daughter's ship had sunk and where his daughters were. When he wrote that song, that incredible, worshipful song to God, he was not happy. He was not in a happy place. But this is what he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whenever my lot... Thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever is going on in the world, we need to know that God is still good. That God is still loving, that God is still sovereign, that God is still almighty. And yet sometimes we can sit and we can wait for our emotions to catch up with us. God knows what's going on with you. It's not a surprise to God if you've got stuff going on in your world that is making you feel unhappy this morning. It's not a surprise. He knows that. Psalm after psalm after psalm that we have in our Bible are written as laments to God. Just listen to Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes where I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. I'm pretty confident David wasn't wildly happy when he wrote that. But it is authentic, it's all in, it's heartfelt, it's head-engaged, spirit-filled worship. And surprise, surprise, that's... God knows that. We have a compassionate God. 
Jesus, who came to this earth, felt your pain. He cried with people. He wept with people. He cares. He's not expecting you to pretend to be happy when you come to worship him. David certainly wasn't pretending to be happy. He was being open, honest and real. But part of being open, honest and real means being real with, about who God is as well. Listen to the last verse of that. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise because he has been good to me. Worship that flows from the Spirit flows from a heart that loves God. Even when it feels like the world is falling down around our ears, the promises of God remain true. He still loves you. He still designed you. He still came down to this earth to give you a second chance. He came to die for you, to take your sin and to give you eternal life. Last week, Dave didn't get to preach his carefully prepared sermon to us because God came and met with us during our worship time and then we had a bunch of incredible testimonies about the great things that God had done in the lives of people in the church like we have done this morning and that is so good. And one of the reasons that is so good is because Paul tells us... Ooh. Just enjoy my cute child for a minute. Yeah, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, <laughs> but part of the reason that that is so good is because Paul tells us that when we're worshipping, one of the key things about spiritual worship is that we are to be always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. years ago I found that whenever I would try and do like extended sessions of prayer right I knew that I should spend more time being thankful and I genuinely wanted to do that but I was running out of stuff to say and I was like I found myself sitting there like condemning myself because I was like but I know there's more I should be thankful for but I've just run out of words and then part of the reason I became a teacher is because I have like the brains uh, span of a gnat Right, I can't, I can't sit still in silence and just, I can't. I can't do it. It's why I'm a teacher. It's why I run around jumping up and down on desks all day. It's why I enjoy playing with my toddler. Um, I, I just, I can't sit if I don't have stuff going on in my head. So when I was sat there and I'd run out of things to say, my brain would wonder, my mind would wonder, what's the tea? What am I going to do this afternoon? Thinking up, thinking up ideas for a lesson plan I was going to teach that day. Or just hurrying on and getting to that bit where I get to ask God for the good stuff. Right? Where I get to stop like paying my thanksgiving and I get to be like, okay, but now I've worshipped you for a little bit. Please, can you give me the stuff? Right? Which is not how prayer works. Please don't do that. <laughs> right? But when we started, when we moved into our new house... We start putting up photos. And those of you who've been in our living room will know that our, we have one whole wall which is just covered in photographs. And to start with, those photos were just slightly random because they were whatever I had on hand at the time. But over time, they've become more and more deliberate. And the reason that they have become more and more deliberate is I've started using it as a prayer wall, as a wall of thanksgiving. The photos that are on the wall of our living room cover different aspects of our life that I want to give thanks for. 
There are photos up there that I use as triggers to remind me to pray for my family, for my children, for my marriage, for my friends, my friends who are going through tough stuff. A lot of those, those guys will be up on my wall. There's photos there of Southampton. I still pray for the church in Southampton. There's photos up there of creation. There's photos up there that remind me to pray for my salvation, to say thank you for my salvation. There are just a wall of photos that remind me of things that I'm thankful of. And that has been transformative for me. This is the photo that is right in the middle. That's why you get a cute photo of my child. And this photo, it's Isaac, for those of you who don't recognise the running bouty two-year-old and the cute lion. Well, that's Isaac, and he's grown a little bit. But when I'm praying with this photo, when I'm being thankful with this photo, I'm being thankful for the Lion of Judah, I'm being thankful that I am protected by this amazing God who is powerful and who is roaring over me, who has declared me to be his child and who is protecting me. I use this photo as a way of praying thanksgiving, obviously, for my family, but also for the fact that God's given us as human beings soft hearts. We are vulnerable. I'm really thankful that as human beings we're vulnerable, that we are soft, that we have emotions, that we are just able to have personal relationships with people. How cool is that? But that we're covered with a layer of protection that God's given us. Having those, wall, those photos up on my wall, and you're going to look at them more closely next time you come around, aren't you? But they have completely transformed what my prayer life is like. They've completely transformed my relationship with God. They've reignited in me a proper heart for worship. Because how great is our God? And it reminds me every single day when I am grumpy because my children have been annoying. And when I am grumpy because my husband hasn't done the washing up. And when I am grumpy because just I am so tired. I get to walk into my living room and see all the ways in which God has blessed our lives. And has put people in our lives who bless us. In the US, they have a whole national holiday dedicated to Thanksgiving. My sister lives in New York, and every year, uh, she's single, and every year she gets together with a whole bunch of her friends, and they make like a giant Thanksgiving vegan feast. I mean, to be honest, it always looks slightly depressing because it's vegan, um, and they're missing some crucial elements out of that feast. But I love the fact that they have a whole weekend in which they're thankful. And it's a bit weird, because it's never entirely clear who they're thanking. But, um, like particularly, particularly when, yeah, uh, you've got a bunch of people gathered around a vegan feast. Who, what, what are we thankful for? But anyway, um, I love the fact they've got a whole weekend dedicated to being thankful. It all does seem a bit of a faff, particularly like three weeks before Christmas. It seemed like a bit of a faff. But I love the idea of having a weekend at the end of the year in which we can just praise God for his blessings, for what he has done in our lives over the last year. And maybe if I was designing it, I think I'd probably do something along the lines of like a prayer and fasting situation rather than like a turkey, 
birds inside birds. I don't, honestly, I don't know. I do not understand it. Um, but, and there will probably be fewer Macy's parades in my design of a Thanksgiving situation. But I love that. The idea of dedicating time to praise God for what he has done. Finally, and I'm going to do this bit super quickly, not because I'm scared of it, but because Dave's going to preach on it. Uh, Dave's going to preach on the next bit um, in a few weeks' time. But spirit-filled worship looks like submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. In our society, submission feels like weakness. Yeah? If I say that I am submitting... That's a phrase you use when you're like having a fight, when you're like six with your siblings, right? And they've got you pinned down and you want them to stop, right? That's a phrase you use then, right? (laughs) You are submitting to them. You're acknowledging that they've won. You're a doormat. You're being walked all over. You are weak and a bit rubbish at fighting. But that's not what that means here, right? That's not what submission. It's not. It's not what we're talking about in the New Testament. Philippians puts it like this: Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, and do not look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Submission is about how you value other people. It's about how you value the person sat next to you. Right? If you really value them as being worth more than yourself, if you value and love them more than you love yourself, like we are called to do, then you're going to submit to them in terms of you're going to want to do stuff that is empowering for them, that is building them up, that is improving their walk with Christ. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about mutually, mutual submission amongst believers to empower their walk with Christ. And we're doing it in a model, whilst, like we've got the incredible model of Jesus. Right? Jesus isn't weak. When Jesus came here and he died on the cross, when he poured himself out for us, that was not weakness. That was strength. Submission is something done from free will. It's done freely out of love. It's an act of worship and a declaration of love for God through your love of others. And while it can seem alien to us in our culture, it's what a powerful witness it would be if God's church was united in mutual submission and love for one another. There's a whole bunch of incredible news in today's passage. God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And do you know what? If you love God this morning, there is great news about his Holy Spirit. In a book of the Bible called Luke, Jesus tells us that God loves to give his Holy Spirit to those who ask. So if you're feeling dry and weary this morning, if you feel like you've got a load of head knowledge and it's not in your heart and you're not feeling it and you want that, If your worship is feeling distracted and hollow, or if you're lacking in gratitude to God, 
oh, if you just long to see more fruit in your life and in your ministry, then come grab us down here. Like, come grab me, come grab Dave, grab Sean. We'd love to pray. We'd love to pray with you guys. And maybe if this is the first time you've heard about God, or the first time you feel ready to do anything about this God that you've heard about this morning, we're so glad you're here. You are so very, very welcome. And we'd love to chat with you and to pray with you if you'd like that. And finally, I just feel like there's someone here this morning who just wants to love God more, that is sat there listening to this and being like, I wish I could want that, but I just don't love God enough. And like, mate, my heart breaks for you, and like, I just want to pray for you, and I want to give you a hug, and like, no judgment, and no like, pressure, but I just, I just want to give you a hug and pray with you. So if that's for you this morning, please come and find me. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you for the amazing testimonies of things that you are doing in people's lives. Thank you for your Holy Spirit presence that guides us into the ways that you want us to live. Come and fill these people again, Lord. Come and fill these people so that they can grow closer to you be overflowing with your love and joy and peace, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. Amen.